Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. Welcome if you're new to our channel. I hope that you all had a wonderful Halloween and a happy Reformation Day. Uh, if you're like my family, it was kind of a late night, so I'm pretty grateful that I got to sleep in today. We're located in California, so daylight saving time ended, which means we got an extra hour of sleep. And that is so much better than losing an hour. And I'm particularly grateful then to be preaching when daylight saving time ends, because according to our church charter, if you preach when daylight saving time ends, you're not allowed to preach when daylight saving time begins. At least that's what I'm telling Pastor Ryan. Well, open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 63. We are rapidly coming to the close of our sermon series, Songs for the Seasons. This is the third and final act in the sermon series on Psalms, and we're culminating it with a focus on praise and worship and thanksgiving and gratitude. And that's not only fitting for the season that we're in, but it also fits with the framework for the book of Psalm. This compilation of songs and prayers, it's organized into five books, and they all end in the same sort of way, in the same sort of idea, with the same sort of language even. The last sentence in book one is this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book two ends this way, Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book three ends with this line. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book four ends this way. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Do you see a pattern emerging? As we've seen, the Psalms deal with all kinds of things and all kinds of circumstances and emotions. You know, there's things like sadness and despair and psalms of lament and worry and anxiety and helplessness. You know, the Bible is so comforting because it addresses reality. We can see ourselves in the Bible. We can see our circumstances in the Bible. It corresponds with reality. It doesn't gloss over our problems. It doesn't just sweep it under the rug or wish it away. No, the Bible faces reality head on. And the reason the Bible can face hard truths is because it is the truth. It has the answer. It doesn't need to pull its punches. It has the answer. We can face all circumstances because we behold the face of Jesus. We have the answer. And so despite all of these struggles and hardships and suffering and heartbreak that the Psalms capture so beautifully, it all always ends in praise. Particularly with the final book, the last several chapters in the book of Psalm are all on praise, building, crescendoing with Psalm 150 that we looked at earlier in our series. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. 
Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So we're following that model as we close in our study of Psalms, focusing on praise and thanksgiving and gratitude, building and building and crescendoing with our Thanksgiving Day service. How cool is that? I think it's pretty neat. So let's go ahead and start off with Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. There are so many breathtaking statements there. The language David uses is like he's infatuated with God, obsessed with God. His mind is captured by God. He thinks about him in the middle of the night. He says, your love is better than life. Can we honestly say any of those statements? That our soul thirsts for God like we're in the desert without water? That our whole being longs for Him? Can we say that? You know, most Christians have never even read through the Bible. And our prayer life can be inconsistent. Our church attendance can be sporadic. Our worship can be tame. Those are things that God gives to us to grow in relationship with him. Do we thirst for God? Do we long for him with our whole selves? I don't think so. I'll just speak for myself. I appreciate God, certainly. I like him, love him even, and I'll even find time to fit him in my schedule. But is God my prime love? Does he sit alone in supremacy with my love? Jesus said in places like Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. If we could get that right, everything else would fall into place. And I mean everything. All of our sins at some point come down to an insufficient love of God. We didn't love righteousness well enough. We didn't love goodness well enough. We didn't love grace well enough. We didn't love justice well enough. Because that's who God is. He's the antithesis of sin and evil. God is goodness. God is holiness. God is righteousness. 
And that's why loving God is a moral imperative. That's why God commands it. He's not being insecure, just desperately wanting us to have affection for him. No, it's a moral imperative. If you don't love God, it means that you don't love righteousness. It means that you don't love goodness. It means that you don't love justice because that's who God is. And so not loving that is wicked. So we hear that and think, well, if that's who God is, then shouldn't loving God be the most natural thing in the world? But it's not. And God knows that it's not. God knows that we have a a sin nature, which points us away from him. We're not naturally going to feel like David feels here. And we certainly won't feel like it all the time. But God is faithful, and if we remain in him, his spirit will work to transform us so that we can love him like we always should have. So that we can honestly say, my soul thirsts for you. My whole being longs for you because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Praising him and loving him because of who he is. That's not natural to us. And so often our praise and love is contingent on our circumstances rather than on the immutable character of God. Now, of course, we praise God for what he has done. Absolutely. Uh, What he does is reflective of who he is. And we'll rightly praise him throughout, throughout this entire season for that. But our praise and love of him must first be grounded in who he is. Because sometimes... It can be hard for us to understand or see what God is doing. In the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, day 10, it, it puts it this way. It says this, question, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So... We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. It's not circumstantial. It's not situational. Through rain, through drought, through fruitful years, through barren years, through health, through sickness, through riches, through poverty, we have confidence in who he is. We love and praise him because of who he is. That's it. Our praise and love is not contingent on our circumstances. It rests on the immutable character of God. You know, according to most biblical scholars, David, when he writes this psalm, is in a terrible circumstance. King David has been through some difficult times. His own father-in-law tries to kill him. His closest friend is killed. His family are taken captive for a time. He's been through some tough things. This one might be the worst. His own son, Absalom, is trying to murder him. Absalom wants the kingdom for himself, and he's gotten plenty of support. And so David gets wind of the plot, and he has to flee from his own throne. Here's what that looked like. 
David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. And they go and they hide in the desert. That's the circumstance that David's in. So the praise that David offers here is not about how great his life is going. It's not going so well. No, this praise stems from who God is. When everything else is stripped away, he sees God clearer, as is so often the case. God's character and nature is what David points us to here. Verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Seeing God, beholding God, is the reason for his praise, not his circumstances. You know, I, I love the picture Pastor Steve gave us of the posture of praise, right? That, that we raise our hands in exultation as we raise our hands in surrender, as we raise our hands like a child wanting to be up and in the arms of their father. And I think you see all three of those things right here in Psalm 63. Arms up in exultation. Verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Arms up in surrender. Verse 7, you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. Arms up to be held by the Father. Verse 8, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. I think that is such a captivating way of thinking about our praise. So it starts with seeing God. We praise God for who he is, not our circumstances, exaltation. And we praise God for who he is, not who we are, surrender. Now that might sound a bit odd. I mean, do we really need to say that we praise God for who he is and not who we are? Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you're unfamiliar, it's written from the perspective of a demon writing to a demon underling who is working on a patient who is a human and trying to draw the patient away from the enemy, who is, of course, God from the demon's perspective. See, see if this resonates with you. The demon writes this. We do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy, feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. This dim uneasiness needs careful handling. If it gets too strong, it may wake him up and spoil the whole game. On the other hand, if you suppress it entirely, which, by the by, the enemy will probably not allow you to do, we lose an element in the situation which can be turned to good account. If such a feeling is allowed to live, but not allowed to become irresistible and flower into real repentance, it has one invaluable tendency. It increases the patient's reluctance to think about the enemy. All humans at nearly all times have some such reluctance, but when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, this reluctance is increased tenfold. They hate every idea that suggests him, just as men in financial embarrassment hate the very sight of a passbook. In this state, your patient will not omit, but he will increasingly dislike his religious duties. He will think about them as little as he feels he decently can beforehand, and forget them as soon as possible when they are over. A few weeks ago, you had to tempt him to unreality and inattention to his prayers. But now you will find him opening his arms to you and almost begging you to distract his purpose and benumb his heart. 
He will want his prayers to be unreal, for he will dread nothing so much as effective contact with the enemy. His aim will be to let sleeping worms lie. Do you feel that too? I think that is so on point. Really being confronted by your sin, being smacked in the face by your sin, leads so often to surrender and then repentance and then praise. But when it's just a vague feeling of not doing so great. You know, I, I snapped my kids this morning. Not great parenting. Don't, don't feel great about it. Or, you know, I, I was driving kind of aggressively, being a bit of a jerk on the road. That's not great. Or, you know, this week I, I really didn't show much patience or understanding with my coworkers. Not a great witness. Or, you know, I, I think I might have had a little too much to drink the other night. I'm kind of embarrassed. Or, you know, I, I haven't been too diligent about reading my Bible or, or with praying. All of those little things that, that, that vaguely make us feel bad uh, push us away from praise. Where we just sort of feel like, you know, I'm just not in a good place to worship. I'm not in the right headspace for praise. I'm not in a good frame of mind for praise. Well, there are a myriad of ways in which we fail. A myriad of ways in which we do not live up to Christ. But we don't praise God because we're worthy. We praise God because he's worthy. You have to think that David here in our psalm isn't feeling too great about himself. His own son is trying to kill him. He pretty much failed as a parent. His own people are rebelling against him. He's failing as a king. But he turns to God in praise, recognizing that it's not about his success or his worth. It's about God's worth and God's glory. So we praise God for who he is, not our circumstances, exaltation. And we praise God for who he is, not who we are, surrender. And then we turn and praise God for what he has done for us. David says this, Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. David has seen God. He has beheld God. And so he has confidence that like the Psalms, it will all ultimately turn to praise. And God does deliver him as he delivers us. He sends us his son to die for us and to overcome our sin nature, to overcome our failings, to overcome our circumstances, to overcome the troubles of the world and turns it all to praise. We raise our hands in exultation. We raise our hands in surrender. We raise our hands and the father stoops down low and raises us up and draws us to himself. That's the reason for all our praise. Praise for who he is, who we're not, and what he's done for us. Lastly, Psalm 67 was on our reading plan. Here's what that says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. 
so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Praise is not a private matter. Do you know that Judaism is not a proselytizing religion? Jews are really not very interested in making converts. In fact, many contemporary rabbis try to dissuade people from converting. And yet, right here in Psalm, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the psalmist cries out for all nations to praise him, for all peoples to worship him. Because when you see and behold God's glory and his majesty, you want others to see and behold him as well. And that is what we are doing throughout this season. Operation Christmas Child boxes are due in shortly. You know, we, we do this because we want all the nations to praise him. Thanksgiving outreach is coming up. We do that because we want all peoples in our community to praise him. The purpose of evangelism is to increase the praise of God throughout the earth and to add more and more members to the heavenly choir. Praise is not a private matter. So we're going to respond in praise. You know, I can think of no better way to close a sermon on this theme than to let his people express their praise to him. So we're going to sing a song. And it's a song we actually sang last week. But as I was listening to it, I was thinking, this is Psalm 63. Thirsting for God, longing for God with our whole being because there is nothing better than him. There is nothing better than him because his love is better than life. No matter our circumstances, no matter our failures, it all turns to praise because of who he is and what he's done. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.